This season of Things Not Seen is sponsored in part by Loyola University's Institute for Pastoral Studies. Find out more at luc.edu slash IPS. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we take a long view of the history of Catholic involvement in American political life. We explore the good, the bad, and the heavenly as we talk to our guest, Stephen Millies, about his new book, Good Intentions, a history of Catholic voters from Roe versus Wade to Trump. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Stephen Millies. He's Associate Professor of Public Theology and the Director of the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. He studied politics at the Catholic University of America and has written widely about Catholicism and American politics. He's the author of the book Joseph Bernadine, Seeking Common Ground. We're discussing his recent book, Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters' Road from Roe to Trump, published by Liturgical Press. Stephen Millies, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thanks very much. It's great to be here. So I'm going to start our conversation pretty much where your book ends. (laughs) So in your conclusion, you talk about a particular Catholic priest, a man by the name of Father Frank Pavone. And he was in New York for a while in the Diocese of New York, and then he moved to Amarillo. But there's a specific reason why you are talking about Father Frank Pavone. And so, first of all, for our listeners who may be unfamiliar with him, who is Father Frank Pavone? He is the National Executive Director of Priests for Life, which is an advocacy organization, which, you know, apart from asserting the permanence of orders in the line of Melchizedek, Priests for Life, is in fact here to advocate for life causes and specifically against abortion. As I say in the book, he would be known to a lot of Catholics, I think, for the appearance of his name on the return address spot on a lot of envelopes seeking support for pro-life causes. Now, when we use this term pro-life, I'm going to assume that most listeners know what that means. But for for maybe the small percentage who do not, when we're talking about pro-life politically, what are we saying? Most normally, we are talking about abortion. And that, of course, you know, gets us into the larger topic of the book, the way that that tends to dominate the conversation, that one particular issue. Pro-life would be a position of saying that life begins at conception. Therefore, to uh, take that opinion would be to say that abortion is morally evil in nearly all or all circumstances. To be pro-life is to be against that. Of course, you know, it is susceptible to a wider and broader meaning as well to say that human life is valuable at every stage and every time and every place. And that is what, for one example, Cardinal Joseph Bernadine called a consistent ethic of life. But the pro-life position essentially is one that is centered on the value of every human person at every moment from conception to natural death. And we'll talk more about Cardinal Bernadine later in the conversation. But for right now, let's stay with Father Frank Pavone. So he engendered some controversy before the most recent presidential election. And for those that may not have noticed what that controversy was, just remind us of it. Yeah, he created 
created a video that appeared online, if I remember correctly, the day before the November 2016 election. In this video, uh, he was making an appeal for voters to be mindful uh, about abortion, particularly, and to drive his point home in the video as he was uh, trying to urge people to think about how to make their voting decision the next day, he had the body of an aborted child on an altar, which was problematic, you know, certainly uh, one could argue perhaps from a, a perspective of taste. One also might argue that it was wrong to make a spectacle of a dead human being. Finally, though, and this is where he got into a little bit of trouble more specifically, uh, it's a violation of canon law, which says that the altar is to be reserved for the celebration of the Eucharist and certainly not used for any purpose of political advocacy. And for those who may be unfamiliar with this term canon law, just quickly, what does that mean? So the Roman Catholic Church is a funny kind of an organization in the sense that it is a spiritual organization. It's a church. It's also, though, a, a very small nation state. It has a body of its own internal law that itself is a sort of a holdover from a time when canon law had a greater uh, civil authority because of the civil authority of the church. But today, internally, the church operates according to its own principles of canon law. And those principles of canon law, of course, are also effectively the civil law of the Vatican City State. But for purposes of liturgy, it makes these prescriptions, for example, about the use of the altar. And so when Father Pavone takes this aborted child and places it on the altar, that is something that violates the basic laws of the church about how that particular piece of space is meant to be used. Right. And that's sort of at a top level. And, you know, we can go again beyond that to say you're making a spectacle of a dead human being in order to make a political point. It really seemed to be Father Pavone. One can imagine he's trying to draw a line that says here is the the sacrifice of this child upon the altar is somehow a parallel to the sacrifice of, of Christ on Calvary that's reenacted on the altar through the Eucharist. One, one could make that argument, but one is also making a spectacle of a dead human being to drive home a political point. And so this notion that somehow overturning Roe is the sine qua non of political ambition for American voters of a certain stripe, Catholics, and you're not the first to make this analysis, Catholics have allied themselves with evangelicals for the last two, maybe three decades mm -hmm. as a means of achieving that goal. Is First of all, do I have that correct? Yeah, it's something that began organically, I would even really say, coming out of the end of the 1970s and the confusion that immediately followed Roe versus Wade and and out of the 1976 presidential campaign. There's a long history here, how the conservative movement came together, and, and that's part of the story, too, because the conservative movement is bringing Roman Catholics into the political mainstream. William F. Buckley Jr., his firing line program, his National Review magazine, Buckley as a Catholic himself, becomes a gathering point for Catholics being involved in public affairs. But then finally, this coincides with the rise of evangelicalism in the 1970s and the 1980s. And the Reagan presidency comes along to sort of build a coalition out of all of these elements together. So if I may, my takeaway for the thesis of the book was that if we look at this trajectory of making overturning Roe the highest good that if we, if we look at that dynamic that that sets up with the Catholic Church, we can see the direct line of that to the election of Donald Trump as a sort of political outcome of these same dynamics. And if I'm following correctly, your thesis is that we can analyze and understand that connection 
And that's what your book is attempting to do. First of all, have I summarized it correctly? Yeah, I think you've said it about as simply as it can be said. One of the great problems in the book, of course, is that it's not that simple and it it requires us to deal with a lot of complicating factors, strange things that might not seem like they would fit with that, like the end of the Cold War, like the rise of evangelicalism, like the history of Catholic immigrants in the United States, and I should add, too, the economic crisis of 2008-2009. All of those play their role there, but at the heart of it, you've got it exactly right. Well, so if that's the case, and if this is an understandable project, where do we begin? What's the starting point? Well, like the song goes, at the very beginning, it's a very good place to start. You have to really go back, as the book does, uh, to the earliest Spanish explorers of the United States who celebrated the first mass on North America, so far as we know, not far from where I wrote the book in South Carolina. That's an important place to begin because those events took place before the Jamestown settlements, before English speakers came to North America. Catholics, in that sense, were the first Europeans to come here. And yet spent the next several centuries feeling like newcoming interlopers in a predominantly white Anglo-Saxon Protestant United States of America. Uh, So the story of American Catholicism, ironically, becomes a story of trying to fit into a place where, at least from a European perspective, Catholics were the first to get here. Centuries are spent by Catholic immigrants being marginalized, being treated as outsiders with strange languages and customs and a strange papist faith. And it takes until about the 1950s. It takes really until the era of the Cold War for Catholics to gain acceptance in the United States. And one of the things I come back to a couple of times in the book is the delightful phrase of a delightful uh, Roman Catholic statesman, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, a former senator from New York, who described in one very pithy sentence exactly how it was that Catholics finally gained acceptance. It was Catholic anti-communism, or as Daniel Patrick Moynihan put it, uh, Harvard men were to be checked in the 50s and Fordham men were to do the check. The idea was that the Fordham men, uh, for their good Roman Catholic anti-communist bona fides, were more trustworthy than the Harvard men. And so finally, by the time we get to the 1950s, the early 1960s, we've arrived just at the time of the Second Vatican Council and the papacy of John XXIII at a, at a Catholic moment globally, but certainly in the United States. It's, it's finally uh, the time when it's acceptable, when it's exciting, when you are at the center of cultural and political and social action if you're a Roman Catholic. Well, so there's so much there that we want to unpack in terms of the history that you've given us, and your book does a great job of doing that. If I can, can just take a step back, what was it that drove the idea behind this book? What was it that led to this book being written? Well, the short answer, of course, would be the 2016 election, but it would be more true to say that I've really spent my adult life thinking about these issues, and, and of course, that's something that I take into Sunday Masses with me week after week after week as I listen to the readings, as I listen to homilies, as I speak to people. The, the book came out of a very specific conversation that I had with a fellow parishioner uh, outside the church uh, in Aiken, South Carolina, where I was living at the time who was Republican. Her husband's a Republican, former Republican elected official. All of their friends, Catholics and Republicans, had voted for Donald Trump, and they, they simply were baffled by it. They, they couldn't understand it because they themselves considered themselves good conservative Republican people, religious people, but just didn't see how they had gotten there. And as I was explaining this, talking about this history, trying to connect these dots standing in the church parking lot, it began to occur to me it might be the time to write all of this down so that hopefully what time that I have spent thinking about this and reading about this and feeling frustrated about all of this might be something that I could share with others a little bit more widely if it would be beneficial. 
If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Stephen Millies. He's the director of the Bernadin Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, Good Intentions, a history of Catholic voters' road from Roe to Trump. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Stephen Millies. He's director of the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago, and we're discussing his recent book, Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters' Road from Roe to Trump. So I want to talk about Catholic identity. You mentioned a moment ago that Catholics celebrated Mass some five centuries ago here on the North American continent. And yet you also make the observation that Catholics are constantly identified as immigrants, as others among us. Talk to me a little bit about that tension. We've been here since before the Protestants got here, and yet in some ways we still are not seen as legitimately American. Talk to me about that history and that tension. It's woven deeply both into the political and the theological fabric. It comes out of circumstances that I talk about a little bit in Chapter 1, circumstances that are at least partially expressed through the writings of John Locke, the English philosopher on whose ideas and writings, whose empiricism so much influenced Thomas Jefferson and, and therefore American political ideas. It was John Locke in his letter concerning toleration who extended religious toleration to everyone coming out of the violence of the English Civil War, coming out of the confusion of Reformation. John Locke is now ready to say, let's make politics about maintaining peace among people who disagree with one another. The only exceptions to toleration that Locke identifies are atheists whose word can't be trusted because they can't take oaths. He also doesn't want to tolerate Muslims because his understanding of things was that they were loyal to a political ruler, a caliph somewhere. And similarly, Locke withheld toleration from Roman Catholics because, of course, the Pope, as I've said earlier, was also a head of state, and that was a, 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 a conflicting political loyalty, and certainly it, it had been up to that point in English history. So coming out of the circumstances of Reformation and entering into the period of Enlightenment, Catholicism remains a sort of an outsider because of a legacy that looks back to a Middle Ages and a feudal period during which uh, the Roman Catholic Church was a, a political power, a mixture of spiritual power and civil power that was almost impossible to set at home with modern political arrangements. And in fact, you know, we're still having trouble with that today. The church-state question is a particularly vexing one for Catholics because Catholic history uh, is one that is so complicated about this. But the last thing that I would say, and, and I talk about this in the book too, you know, the, the whole question of being a Christian or a believer 
of any stripe in the world is a much more complicated question, I think, than we often let it be. Because as St. Augustine and so many others have written, the challenge is to, to live in the world while living for another world. That's the challenge, not just of Catholic or Christian belief, but that's the challenge of belief. And it's right there in the beginnings of Christianity. It's there in scripture. In that encounter between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, where Jesus tries to explain, my kingdom is, you know, somewhere else. My kingdom is elsewhere. And Pontius Pilate, who's just a provincial Roman bureaucrat, he just can't understand it because political power is something else. Christianity and uh, religious traditions generally assert a different kind of authority. And yet it has to be lived here in the world. There's inevitable conflict about that. And it's conflict that's woven into uh, daily life everywhere. But the Catholic experience of having had hegemonic, worldly civil power for, oh, about a thousand years, that's a lot of historical baggage to deal with, both for Catholics uh, who carry around some sense of what a church is that still has a code of canon law to uh, govern what is, in fact, a small nation state settled in the the middle of the city of Rome. But certainly for non-Catholics, it makes Roman Catholics look a little strange uh, with all that history, too. Well, the shadow of this notion of Catholic citizens being beholden to another power, the sort of popular term for that through the ages has been popery. Now, we can certainly find pockets still of anti-Catholic sentiment, but I think it's fair to say that we have largely stepped away from the kind of robust anti-Catholicism that you would have seen in the early part of the 20th century. And so I'm wondering if you can pinpoint a turning moment where we began to shift from sort of popular anti-Catholicism to a more popular acceptance of Catholicism as maybe they can be good Christians too. Well, I think that by itself is sort of also uh, an important premise of the book. Because I I think that turning point probably, I would argue, comes somewhere in the 1950s and the 1960s amid the uh, beginnings of the Cold War when Roman Catholics become so important to the American sense of its own defense against atheistic communism. But the problem here then becomes, it's twofold. One is that it does sort of set off a counter-reaction inside the Catholic world, because Catholics who are becoming a little too comfortable in the world, who, who seem a little too comfortable making compromises in order to live in a secular world, their Catholicism becomes a little bit suspect, and that's where begins a preoccupation with something, a phrase you used earlier, Catholic identity. Are we Catholic enough if we're really that comfortable living in the world. But then the other problem that emerges too is as soon as Catholics arrive, as soon as Roman Catholics, uh, Roman Catholic immigrants or their children or their grandchildren in the 50s and 60s can begin to feel like they've made it, that they've really become part of American life and American society, first comes the turmoil that follows the changes of the Second Vatican Council. Then comes the encyclical Humanae Vitae and all of the social and political dislocation of the late 1960s. And then finally comes Roe versus Wade, where I think Catholics who not all that long ago, 10 years earlier, breathed a sigh of relief and thought, well, my gosh, we finally made it, only to find that the world has shifted dramatically for them very, very quickly. And and that becomes very unsettling, very unnerving as well, which again, touches off a a, a kind of a powerful counter-reaction under the heading of Catholic identity. Well, you've just said a lot in that one answer, and I want to go back to a couple of pieces of it. You note in the book that 
You know, for a long time, Catholics were a severe minority, and they began to make numerical progress, mm-hmm. but that numerical progress was not matched by social progress until, as you noted, the middle of the 20th century, the Cold War and all of that. And so Catholics saw themselves finally having political acceptance and even to the point of having a Catholic president get elected. And then, as you point out in the book, and as you've just pointed out now in your book, Good Intentions, suddenly there's this moment of Roe versus Wade. And the way that you describe it in the book is almost as if it's a it's a fast reversal, like a almost a whiplash of how did this happen? Mm-hmm. And the bishops begin to react. Yep. And this begins to really chart the political trajectory that we're talking about that now leads to 2016, the election of Donald Trump. But let's talk, let's linger for a moment in terms of that whiplash moment of Roe versus Wade. And to do that, I want to go back and say, you also note in your book, Good Intentions, that the popular understanding now of Roe versus Wade fails to see some of the nuances that happened in that decision. And so, first of all, walk us through some of those nuances. Yeah, you know, this is a, a part now of uh, the political conversation today that the uh, the legal position of Roe versus Wade is so much under discussion again that we tend to assume that Roe versus Wade simply granted a constitutional right to have an abortion and move on. What what the court did in Roe was what the court does very often when it's presented with a difficult question of personal liberty because every question of personal liberty is really a question of my liberty and somebody else's. How far can I swing my fist before I hit someone else's jaw uh, is a fine enough metaphor to think about the problem. My freedom is eventually, when I exercise it, it's going to impose itself on someone else. And in in its decision in Roe, the court is presented with both the rights of a pregnant woman and the rights of an unborn human being. And what the decision in Roe, in the uh, Roe decision in 1973 did, was it, it applied what the court would call a balancing test. It balanced the liberties of one against the liberties of the other, and it divided pregnancies into a scheme of of trimesters, where as the pregnancy goes on, the rights of the pregnant woman scale down and the rights of the unborn person scale up. And the decision point was what the court called viability, the point at which it might be medically possible for a human being to live outside of gestation, outside of a uterus, outside of a, of a mother nourishing it and, and helping it to get to a point of being able to live outside. We know babies are able to do that even before advances in medical technology, before nine months. So all of these things mattered in the Roe decision. The Roe decision was confronted with this difficult question and didn't simply say, we'll let anyone have an abortion whenever they want. There were restrictions in the second trimester and the second, third And in the third trimester, even greater restrictions on access to abortion. And the last thing I would have to say, too, is prior to Roe versus Wade, abortions were regulated at the state level. Roe did take the question out of the hands of state government by identifying this constitutional right that could be exercised in certain certain circumstances according to that schedule of trimesters. But to overturn Roe, something that's not generally understood very well, would only return the question to state governments. That's the way the federalist system works. Well, and so in the wake of that, we see the bishops sort of rallying around this question as the most important question that they would deal with. And as a result of that, as we move from the 1970s into the 1980s, and there's more detail that we'll get to in the next segment, but but you make the point that the bishops in the 1980s were much less interested in dialogue about the culture. And instead, they were interested in confronting secular culture with what you call authentic alternatives rooted in traditional doctrine. And talk to me about how they thought about these authentic alternatives and how they presented them. To begin, you'd have to look at this 
in a context of how they would have looked at it at the time, it really takes about 10 years for that shift to get underway. And there are things inside and outside the church that happen that, that, that help that shift happen. But after 10 years, the needle hasn't really moved. We've reached a point um, not too different from where we still are right now of sort of cultural and political stalemate about abortion. We can't seem to get to a point where durable majorities will see abortion in the way that the church teaches us to see it as a, as a moral evil. Polling continues even today to really show a nation that can't make up its mind about this question definitively. And so I think at least part of what happens there in the, in the early 1980s is, is a kind of an abandonment of hope, a hope that the, the persuasion can take place. A secular culture then, in a way that had been brewing since the late 1960s, I think we could argue, secular culture begins from the perspective of the official church, from the perspective of Rome, from the perspective of American bishops. The secular world begins to look like a problem to be solved rather than a field of salvation. And that's going to mean a much more confrontational approach, not so much trying to engage people in dialogue or discussion, not so much trying to persuade people uh, as really just trying to well, to put it as gently as possible, to teach people or to confront people, to confront the culture rather than to accompany it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Stephen Millies. He's the director of the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, Good Intentions, a history of Catholic voters' road from Roe to Trump. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stephen Millies. We're discussing his recent book, Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters' Road from Roe to Trump. So in the midst of this cultural convulsion for the Catholic Church and particularly the Catholic bishops around and in the wake of the Roe versus Wade decision, a bishop from Cincinnati is elevated to become the Archbishop of Chicago and eventually is elevated to Cardinal Joseph Bernadine. Bernadine plays a role particularly in the election of Jimmy Carter in terms of speaking the position of the bishops. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, in 1976, Joseph Bernadine was the president of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I talk uh, at greater length about this in the book, but just to explain it briefly, there are national conferences of Catholic bishops. This is uh, something that was almost invented in the United States. I think we can say it was uh, and became a feature of the structure of the church after the Second Vatican Council. All of the bishops of a nation or of a region have regular meetings and cooperate together. In the, in the United States, they're headquartered in Washington, D.C. A bishop is normally, in fact, always is elected to be the president of the conference and then to speak for the conference, and he has a three-year term. At that time, Bernadine was the president of the Conference of Bishops, and 1976 was the first presidential election following Roe versus Wade. That put Bernadine at ground zero, uh, right in in the heart uh, of the first presidential election to be litigated after the Roe decision. What followed went really, really badly. 
and and I think was a, as you say, a pivotal moment in why we are here. Uh, Jimmy Carter was the Democratic nominee, and Catholics up to that time, certainly since the time of uh, Al Smith, Catholics had not uh, all voted for the Democrats, certainly, but Catholics were identified with Democrats as voters. Jimmy Carter was what we called in the 1970s and still is a born-again Christian and had announced himself to be pro-life. And so Catholic bishops, I think, felt like they might have no difficulty at all getting from Jimmy Carter a promise that he would work to overturn Roe versus Wade. But that's not what happened. Uh, Jimmy Carter was also the first Southerner nominated by the Democratic Party since the 19th century, if I'm remembering that correctly. He encountered a lot of skepticism from African Americans. He encountered a lot of skepticism from women. And so he had a considerable problem consolidating his nomination uh, inside the Democratic Party. That was the, the scene that was set for a meeting that took place between the Carter campaign and the Catholic bishops in July of 1976, where Cardinal, well, then Archbishop Bernadine, read from a prepared statement about the importance of Roe. The Carter campaign, Jimmy Carter tried to engage the bishops in conversation, but they, they wouldn't budge. And it, it from the, the several accounts of that conversation that I've read, it sounded like it went quite awkwardly and very badly. Archbishop Bernadine went to the microphones uh, outside that meeting at the Mayflower Hotel in Washington, D.C., and announced that the bishops were disappointed with what Governor Carter had told them. And Archbishop Bernadine went on to say that it's not enough to announce personal opposition to be personally opposed to abortion, but one's public position as a public official must align to one's personal values. And that's a story that's going to recur throughout the Catholic engagement with the abortion issue. The Ford campaign was quick to sense an opportunity. Gerald Ford was the first unelected president in the history of the United States, having neither been elected president nor vice president, and he was running in his first campaign. They reached out to the U.S. bishops for a visit. By every account, that conversation went much more comfortably and naturally. Archbishop Bernadine went out to the microphones after that meeting and announced that the bishops were encouraged by their meeting with President Ford. And uh, the effect was uh, immediate. It was exactly what it sounds like. It sounded like the U.S. bishops were telling Catholics that what they really need to do is vote for the Republican candidate. In the words of the Bishop of Madison, Wisconsin, who spoke at the, the uh, November 1976 meeting of the, uh, the bishops, the bishops conference, he said that the credibility of this conference has been sacrificed to two words. Those words were disappointed and encouraged because what he appreciated and what turned out to be the legacy of that summer was that the church had identified abortion as the most important issue and the candidate who had the correct position on that issue is the one you're supposed to vote for. It was the beginning of an uncomfortable but apparent endorsement of Republican candidates by U.S. Catholic bishops. What struck me about that is the centrality that at the time Archbishop Bernadine played in making abortion the question. And what was ironic about that is the ways in which, in his later legacy, the then Cardinal Bernadine was seen as almost being an enemy of the centrality of the abortion question. And that revolves around a growing notion that Bernadine had, and he presented this, in fact, in a paper called The Consistent Ethic of Life. Talk to me, first of all, about what the consistent ethic of life that he presented in that paper was. 
I want to say one thing first, and it's an important couple of biographical points. You know, if you look at Bernadine's public statement the day after the court announced Roe v. Wade, he uses the word evil in that statement four times. It's extraordinary. And if you read, uh, as I have read a lot of Cardinal Bernadine's public statements, they're very deft, they're very well nuanced, they're very well considered. That statement fell with multiple thuds. It was unsubtle in every way. And his statements about Roe throughout the years that follow, I've, I've read all of them, return to that very unBernadine-like register of diction. I think what must be remembered is Joseph Bernadine was an immigrant Catholic. His mother was pregnant with him when they emigrated from Italy. Joseph Bernadine also had seen his father die when he was six years old. Joseph Bernadine had seen his father cared for by the Sisters of Providence Hospital in Columbia, South Carolina. I think Joseph Bernadine embarked on his life with a particular and very Catholic appreciation of the preciousness of human life. And I think as much as any other immigrant Catholic or child of immigrant Catholic in the 1970s, he was personally horrified and aghast that the United States of America, uh, of which he was a citizen and which he loved deeply, could get to a place that could have legal abortion. I think we would want to say that as the important premise as we look ahead then to understand the consistent ethic of human life, which as an interpreter looking back, I would say really was Joseph Bernadine trying to dial back a little bit of what happened after that 1976 election and to try to get the conversation about abortion onto a better footing and onto a more productive footing. The Consistent Ethic really was born in 1983, as you say, out of a pastoral letter issued by the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, a teaching document that the bishops all wrote together uh, about nuclear, uh, the nuclear arms race called the Challenge of Peace. This was this is a whole other story about the, the controversy between the U.S. Bishops' Conference and the Reagan administration over a document that ultimately proved to be quite critical of the nuclear arms buildup uh, in the early 1980s in the midst of the Cold War. But Joseph Bernadine, as the chair of the committee that wrote that document, managed to bring the whole conference together, both peace activist bishops like Thomas Gumbleton and the bishop of the military ordinariate and a Navy admiral, uh, the future Cardinal John O'Connor of New York, were on the committee that wrote this document that passed the bishops' conference with a very small number of negative votes. Part of the position of the Bishops' Conference that came out of this was, if I could summarize a complicated point in one sentence, that it does very little good to assert that every child conceived uh, should be given the opportunity to be born and grow up and live a full human life if that full human life might be cut short moments after birth by a, a nuclear war that would leave few survivors and no winners. It was the beginning of the U.S. bishops knitting together a consistent ethic of life position that, as I suggested earlier, recognizes the value and the importance and the sanctity of every human life from conception to natural death, and so that then recognizes that abortion is an important threat to human life and to the preciousness of human life. So is poverty. So is nuclear war. So is access to health care. So is euthanasia. So are bioethical issues uh, surrounding in vitro fertilization and artificial methods of conception. Those and all sorts of other things form a tapestry of concerns about human life. And and to be sure, some are more central than others. Some perhaps need more attention at one time or another than others. But that's essentially where the consistent ethic of life came from. It was Bernadine trying to walk the dog back after the 1976 
1996 election had gotten things started so badly, the challenge of peace, that pastoral letter, offered a good opportunity to begin a different conversation about protecting and promoting human life. Well, and you note that the challenge of peace is one of two ambitious documents that come out at around the same time, the other being another exhortation called Economic Justice for All. And you note that these mark a turning point for the bishops in their engagement with American politics. What did you mean by that observation? As I say, the the bishops' conferences, there'd been a a sort of an informal bishops' conference in the United States since World War I, and really American bishops had been meeting since the 19th century. But the bishops' conference as an institution of the global church was something very new uh, after the Second Vatican Council that ended in 1965. Joseph Bernadine actually, before he was president of the Conference of Bishops, this is worth mentioning as well, spent 1968 to 1972 at the Bishops' Conference creating statutes, creating rules and an organization for the conference that it still uses today. Uh, he, he really was the architect of the U.S. Bishops' Conference, and, and we would still say that today. What then he was able to do, and other bishops with him, we should certainly be careful to say, but what he was able to do through the 1970s and the 1980s was build that conference together into an organization that really wanted to work and collaborate together in a new kind of way. And the most important way was to come together to make these statements in pastoral letters and teaching documents about important urgent issues of concern in the United States. So they addressed the nuclear arms buildup first in 1983. They addressed the question of poverty and economic justice in 1986. But by this time, we're reaching that different moment in the global church and certainly in the church in the United States in the early to mid-1980s, where things are beginning to become more fractious, where uh, a greater frustration is making itself plain in the bishops' engagement of public issues. The bishops founder uh, from this point on on their ability to come together in order to agree. The next uh, document, if I'm not wrong, was to be a document about the role of women in society and the church. They ultimately were unable to come together to agree on a document. And the last thing I'd say there, too, was this coincided with a period of time where Cardinal Bernadine's own influence, both in the American church and in the global church, was now beginning to encounter some new challenges as new bishops and new cardinals like Bernard Law and John O'Connor and others as well, were beginning to challenge his way of approaching these questions by means of dialogue and engagement. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Stephen Millies. He's director of the Bernardin Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, Good Intentions, a history of Catholic voters' road from Roe to Trump. We'll be back in a moment. So for those of you that are longtime listeners to Things Not Seen, you may be aware that I do another show called The Francis Effect with my friend Dan Haran. He's a Franciscan priest. Every couple of weeks, he and I get together to bring you commentary on current events from a perspective informed by our Catholic faith. Now, Dan, why should I be talking to you? Who are you? Who am I? I'm a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest, and a professor of theology here in Chicago. And that's a good question. I have no idea why you should be talking with me. But if people are interested in what a conversation between you, the otherwise uh, respectable host of Things Not Seen, and me, the not-so-respectable Roman Catholic priest and theologian, I think they should tune in. Yeah, they should definitely tune in. So that's The Francis Effect, and you can find it at francisfxpod.com.
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. We're speaking today with Stephen Millies. He's director of the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. We're discussing his recent book, Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters' Road from Roe to Trump. In looking at your book, Good Intentions, you present the long history of Roe versus Wade, and you show that it took a couple of years for the challenges to mount. But once the challenges really mounted to the Roe decision, they were vigorous, including congressional attempts to create a constitutional amendment and other sorts of things. And yet I would jump in very quickly to say, you know, sort of bizarrely, that President Nixon gave a news conference eight days after Roe. It didn't come up. Joseph Bernadine gave the prayer at the National Prayer Breakfast the day after the Roe decision. And from every public record I can find from there, Roe didn't come up. The temperature was lower in those days. And it's it's strange to think that looking backwards because we know now what we know now. But to have lived then is never to have seen what we're living in now coming. That's one of the reasons why I say I think we have to temper our judgment about what we can know about where all of this is headed. But I think also there tends to be an alarmism across the spectrum. Either those who think that the election of a or the the elevation of a Supreme Court justice is going to solve all the problems (laughs) or that a certain Supreme Court decision will quench all the problems. And this gets back, I think, to what we were saying earlier in the conversation, that we have a real desire, many of us, for settling the question and for a sort of heavenly state where if we can just get this one question answered, then suddenly it'll be utopia. And I think that your model of American society is premised on a very different set of balances and that for you, it much more turns on the continuing conversation. Now, first of all, do I have that right? Yeah, I like the way John Courtney Murray put it more than 50 years ago now, uh, where he described politics as, and you'll forgive the language of the 1950s and 60s, but he described politics as men locked together in argument. What's wonderful about that, you know, we don't tend to think of argument as something wonderful, but what's wonderful about that is, is the unstated premise, which is that everybody's in it. And it just goes on. And you, you know, it's like a tug of war. You might feel like you're winning for a little while, but then things are going to change kind of quickly. And then suddenly it's a totally different struggle. We're all born into something that was underway before we got here, and it's going to be going on after we leave here. The question really then isn't, can we master human reality? Can we master these circumstances? Because we can't. There are too many other people locked in argument with us, and we don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what's going to happen. I don't even know that I'm going to be here tomorrow. We have to approach these things, in other words, with a kind of humility, uh, it always seems to me. Uh, And it's a humility that's lacking because it feels unnatural because so much of our lives we do have control over, but we really don't. Well, and so what would you suggest to our listeners to be some of the deliberate movements that we should now be taking in this political moment in 2018? The book is about polarization. We talked about one sentence earlier to try to sum it up. One word that it's about is polarization. The idea that there are two sides which inevitably leads to one side being right and the other side being wrong. From a perspective of theological history, we could talk about a Manichaean tendency to see the world in terms of light and dark, 
Sheep and goats. Sheep and goats. We could also talk about that way of looking at reality that George Weigel talked about Pope John Paul having learned growing up in Nazi and Soviet-dominated Poland, that there are two sides. Inevitably, one is right and the other is wrong. And, and where that ultimately leads us is to the idea that my side has to win because, well, it's my side, and your side has to lose because it's not my side. And that's no longer a discussion about ideas or issues or public policy. And it gets us dangerously close to a habit of hatred toward one another because we're different. What I would say is that over the last 50 years or so, we have, for a lot of very complicated reasons, been spiraling down a tendency toward polarization that has led us now to a point where we cannot even imagine that someone we disagree with could have a good reason for what they're saying, uh, or might even be right about some stuff. What I know, having lived in this world, and I think what we all know, uh, is that nobody's absolutely right about everything all the time, and nobody, therefore, could possibly be absolutely wrong about everything all the time. Since the time of the Greeks, and certainly the Christian tradition has partaken of this too, we've thought of politics as a rational activity. It's something that human beings do, because we apparently alone, at least it seems that way so far in the animal kingdom, possess the capacity to think in these ways, to reason, to solve complex problems, to create, to appreciate beauty, to do all of these things are celebrations of what our human nature really is, but it can take an effort. We need to get an education. We need to be educated broadly. We need to learn how to listen to other people. And then once we've done those things, we can entertain the idea that even though, for example, our polarization that began with a particular engagement with the abortion issue since the time of Roe in the early 1970s, our polarization has led us to an increasingly dark place in our social and political life, uh, an education and a certain generosity that we can learn, a certain humility with which we can approach these things can tell us to appreciate that the people who have led us here did it only with good intentions. Nobody wanted to ruin our political system. Nobody wanted to ruin our political culture with this intensely polarizing argument. They thought they were doing the right thing. We need to say that, and we need to think that, and we need to be aware of that as we think about what the problems are, because it helps us appreciate what the problems are with a clearer eye. Instead, what we often do is indulge a habit of outrage. We indulge a habit of instant reaction. And so much of our technological life, of course, supports that. It's exhausting. If you've got notifications on your smartphone, it can be exhausting how quickly the things pour in every day to be outraged and angry about. What's important, I think, is as you, you point to that metaphor of the quicksand, what's important, I think, is to try to find ways to step back and to stop talking and to do some listening and to try to do it with some sympathy and some humility and some generosity. Because finally, we can be locked together in argument and we can disagree with one another without hating one another, without absolutely rejecting the other person, not just what that person is saying, but the person. Uh, there is no such thing as human garbage. There is no such thing as a human being not created and loved by God if you're a religious person. But even if you're not a religious person, there's no such thing as a person in the United States who is not entitled to the protection of its government and to have a voice in what that government is going to do. We all matter. That's the first premise of politics as much as it is the first premise of faith. 
Well, Stephen Milley's, your book, Good Intentions, was encyclopedic, in my opinion. It showed me so much of particularly the last 50 years of our political life and helped me understand some things that I've lived through in a new light. And I just want to thank you, first of all, for writing the book, but also for taking time to speak to us at length about it today. Well, it was good talking about it. I enjoyed it. Thank you. We've been speaking today with Stephen Milley's. He's Associate Professor of Public Theology, and he's the director of the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. We've been discussing his recent book, Good Intentions, A History of Catholic Voters' Road from Roe to Trump, published by Liturgical Press. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park, here on the south side of Chicago. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC is responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part through the generosity of our supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and to find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.